too much about STEM Bank uh, today, uh, but I'm going to go through um, the story of how we uh, started to use some of these new technologies to understand a complex disorder like migraine. Um, and uh, I hope it will sort of illustrate to you uh, some of the really exciting uh, science that's out there at the moment and the available technologies that, that are at hand. Um, and I think we're really going to start to make an impact on uh, all sorts of neurological disorders in a way that's never been possible before. Um, so why am I interested in headache? Well, because headache is a really important, prevalent, lots and lots of people have it, and really disabling. Uh, and the cost to the economy, uh, both in terms of direct health as well as indirect cost through loss of productivity, is vastly underestimated. And even perhaps more underrated is the cost to the patient in terms of the amount of disability that uh, a headache disorder can cost. Um, and uh, you know, you often, some of you will have migraines, most of you will have experienced a headache, and for most of you will have just shrugged it off. But there are some people who will be getting a headache on at least <coughs> half the days of the month, and they will have to stop doing whatever they would normally do. They may have to go and lie down in a quiet, dark room, won't be able to go to work, won't be able to engage in social activity. So for those individuals, it's really difficult. And whilst there are treatments that are around, a substantial proportion uh, find that there isn't anything that helps them. And so there is a significant unmet need uh, for these disorders. So migraine is a type of headache, and it's a primary headache disorder. So by that we mean that it's not being caused by, say, something like a tumour or an infection. So it's something about the genes and the environment that's driving it. And the headache itself is very characteristic. It's throbbing, it's pulsating, uh, it's uh, severe, often one-sided, but can affect the whole head, will last for a number of days, and associated with sensitivity to lights, to sounds, to smells, to touch. Um, in uh, uh, many patients, um, you get... Window is not genuine, apparently. <laughs> so I don't know where that's why it's because this is short. Right. Um, so for most patients, um, uh, it's not just a headache. It's part of a broader complex of symptoms. 
So in about a third of Negroes, you will get an aura. So these are transient neurological symptoms like flashing lights or zigzag lines, um, or weakness down one side of the body or sensory loss. Uh, in many patients, if you ask them, even before the aura, they'll have prodromal symptoms such as irritability, tiredness, yawning, even fluid retention. And after the headache attack is finished, you've also got other symptoms associated with it as well. So although the headache itself, the pain itself for an individual might only last for a day or so, all of these other associated symptoms means that an attack can last for longer, which means again for people who get migraine, a large <coughs> chunk of their lives are affected in one way or the other by their symptoms. Okay, so when you think about a disorder like migraine, um, you're faced by complexity. And this is a challenge not just for migraine, but this is a challenge for all, uh, all disorders, all complex disorders. Um, but if we think about migraine, then we know that there is clinical heterogeneity of migraine. So it comes in all sorts of different forms, and we can classify it in all sorts of different ways. Those clinical distinctions may or may not be meaningful uh, in terms of pathogenesis, but this is what we see as clinicians. I've already told you about the different phases of a migraine attack. We also know that migraine is affected by the environment. So there are well-known triggers like chocolates or alcohol. Um, hormones are very prominent triggers. It's also clear that circadian systems are really important as well. And if you plot out when someone's going to get a migraine attack and you collate all that together, it's really interesting that there's a very clear peak at a particular time of day. So there are environmental factors as well. And migraine, as with many other disorders, is a systems disorder. But if we're going to make progress in terms of trying to uh, get to drug discovery, we've got to work out a way of reducing that complexity into a, a screenable assay. So that's the challenge. Can you take something as complex as this and find a surrogate that you can use as a readout in a simple cellular assay that you can then throw compounds against to see whether it can ameliorate that, and that will then be predictive of ultimate efficacy. So that's the challenge that I face with migraine and that others face when they think about other disorders. Okay, and so this is what we try to do in our research group to reduce down that complexity. We use the genetics that are increasingly emerging in the field of migraine. We take on animal models because that allows us to look at in vivo uh, settings and it allows us to uh, manipulate uh, that and to test hypotheses. And we are informed from experimental medicine studies uh, in terms of what might be going on in human systems. And again, for neurological problems, when we're trying to then reduce it down into that simple assay, the problem that we face is that when we're trying to get a cellular model, we've never been able to get access to neurons, not very easily. So we've had to resort to things like immortalized cell lines, which are quite far removed from what is probably happening. Or we've had to use primary cell lines from animals. And again, that's not necessarily representative of what might be going on in the human condition. And of course, stem cells have changed that completely. Because for the first time, the ability to be able to take an adult cell from an individual, from a patient, and then turn that into a stem cell, so an adult cell, such as a hair cell, blood cell, skin sample, and turn it into a stem cell, which has the ability to become any cell type in the body, as well as the ability to be able to self-renew, you now have the possibility of making a 
cell types that are relevant to your disease process that would otherwise be inaccessible. So we can now make neurons that are relevant to uh, neurological disorders okay, and other cell types too. So this is essentially the paradigm of what we're trying to do in my research group. So as Chris mentioned, I kind of started off this journey looking at genes. And we started off with linkage analyses. Uh, um, and this was before the Human Genome Project had matured. Um, and a number of years ago, linkage studies were incredibly successful in pinning down genes that cause Mendelian disorders. So where it was a single gene mutation leading to a disorder, linkage studies were incredibly successful. And they were successful in migraine. And they were successful in a group of disorders called familial hemiplegic migraine, where sufferers will get paralysis down one side of the body. And it turned out that it was ion channel genes that were important uh, for migraine, and ion channel genes that were expressed in neurons. And so, in my mind, that really heralded the era in which we think of migraine as not a vascular disorder, as many of you might think, but as principally a neurogenic disorder. So we know that migraine's got a genetic basis because there's familial aggregation. If we do twin studies, we see a heritability estimate of something like 65%. So a significant contribution from genes, but also it needs to be said that there's a contribution from environment. And as I've already mentioned, there are familial forms of migraine. And uh, we get a nice spectrum in migraine. I think this is one of the reasons I really like studying migraine, is because we've got this spectrum and we can think about migraine and its genetic causation, either from a single gene defect or oligogenic inheritance, as you will see with familial migraine, where it's not the more unusual forms of migraine, but typical forms that segregate across multiple generations, and then the more common forms of polygenic migraine, where it's likely to be low-impact, high-frequency variants that are driving those. Okay. This is the picture that's starting to emerge for the genetic basis of migraine. So we've got those early linkage studies identified genes causing the familial hemiplegic migraine. We've got syndromes, uh, syndromic forms of migraine. So these are other clinical syndromes, often vasculopathies, interestingly, uh, that have also uh, got migraine as a core part of the phenotype. More recently, there have been other interesting syndromes. So for example, very recently, familial advanced phase syndrome, so a circadian defect caused by mutations in the uh, casein kinase gene, has also uh, appeared to cause migraine, uh, at least in one family. And then the genome-wide association variants. And these are the genes that have been linked, but of course we've got no idea whether these are the actual genes, because as some of you will know, when we look at genome-wide association studies, what that will pick out is a lead variant and a region, and varying levels of evidence that a gene nearby may or may not be involved in that process. But certainly, as mentioned previously, it looks as if neurogenic processes are important, vascular function is re-emerging as an important area, and then some novel aspects too. And to date, um, rare variant causes of typical migraine, so not the unusual problems of migraine, have been difficult to identify. But we did find one, um, and uh, this is something that we uh, identified a number of years ago now, uh, four years ago, where we did a candidate screen in iron channels based upon previous findings across a large number of probands with migraine. And in one of those probands, we found a lot of function mutation 
in an ion channel, uh, the gene's called KCNK18, and the protein is TRESC. And in, when we then mapped that out in the broader family, we saw perfect segregation across a multi-generational family of this lesser function variant associating with the migraine phenotype. Now, since then, uh, a couple of other families have emerged, they've not been published yet, as having the friendship mutation. But on the whole, this is a rare cause of <coughs> migraine, and I suspect it will remain that way. Now, what is TRESC? So TRESC is a two-pore potassium channel, so that means it's a leak channel. So it sits in the membrane, and potassium leaks across it. So is it important? Yes, it is. It's really important because these channels set the background excitability of neurons. And they also set how likely it is that a neuron is going to respond to a given stimulus. So in a sense, it's like a thermostat. It's controlling the excitability of these neurons. And these channels are modulated by physical factors such as stretch and also by other second messenger systems such as uh, cyclic AMP or um, calcium. So uh, it's, it's, these are really important channels. And when we looked at channel function with this mutation in xenopus suicide, so frogs' eggs, we observed that the uh, mutation did indeed cause a loss of function. And the prediction would be that this would lead to neuronal excitability. Okay, so that's the lead that we got in from the genetics. So then we went on and, well, in parallel, we've also been performing human brain imaging studies. And the reason we've been interested in human brain imaging studies is because migraine is a systems disorder. And again, uh, one way to get access to humans and to understand what the pathophysiological processes in humans is to use these kind of approaches because it's non-invasive. Um, the headache of migraine involves activation of pain pathways and in particular the trigeminal neurons. But it's also clear that other parts of the brain are also really important for migraine pathogenesis. And we knew that because patients get disorder, the transient neurological symptoms. And for some patients, the aura will progress in a very stereotypical way at a very particular rate. And uh, people like Lashley reported on this steady progression. And around about the same time, another researcher observed a neurophysiological phenomenon called spreading depression in, uh, say for example, if you drop potassium chloride on a rabbit cortex, you'd see a wave of initial activity followed by uh, depression, which was sustained. And so the link between migraine aura and cortical spreading depression came about, and subsequently brain imaging studies of patients having an aura have observed waves of surrogates. I can't say it's direct observance of this spreading depression, but surrogate markers of spreading depression. So most people believe that spreading depression in migraine uh, is linked with the aura. So this is evidence that there's cortical disturbance in migraine. We also know that there's cortical disturbance in migraine because if you do electrophysiological studies and, for example, stimulate a migraine individual with light or with sensation, normally you or I, if you don't have migraine, would habituate to that, so your responses would decrease. Now, a migraine, even between an attack, in fact, in between an attack, because things change when they're having an attack, but in between an attack, they have a defect in that habituation suggesting that their cortices are hyper-responsive. So 
essentially the evidence is that there is sensory dysregulation, there is cortical dysregulation going on in migraine, as well as aberrations in the peripheral pathways. So we've been looking at that, and uh, we've been using brain imaging, and this is work with uh, Holly Bridge, uh, and then more recently with uh, Andy Segadel and Irene Tracy. Um, and we've been uh, looking at the response of the migraine brain between attacks to stimulation uh, such as light onset. And we see quite profound differences between controls and uh, migraine patients. And this is between attacks. So to you or I, they would look absolutely normal. And yet, there are major differences in the way in which the visual cortex responds to light. There are also differences, and I haven't shown this on the slides, in the way in which there is coupling between the neurotransmitters glutamate and GABA and the bulb response, which again supports the notion that there's a disturbance in excitatory and inhibitory coupling in migraine. Right, so we think that aura is being caused by spreading depression, and we know that the headache is being caused uh, by activation <coughs> of the trigeminal neurons. But when we look at this phase, that's sort of occurring at this stage. So where does a migraine attack actually start? Well, the clue might be in the symptoms that are occurring here in the prodrome. And uh, also in the timing of the onset of attacks with the diurnal peak of the circadian variation. And so we've been doing imaging studies of patients having an attack. Okay, so we're now using a different modality, arterial spin labeling, which is a more direct readout of uh, cerebral blood flow and therefore a more direct readout of cortical activity. And the main message to get from this slide is that the first place that gets switched on in a migraine attack before all of the other classical pain pathways is the hypothalamus. And that fits in really nicely with some of the prodromal symptoms that patients experience and also potentially some of that circadian variation and also all the various other kind of trigger factors that might uh, uh, set off a migraine. Okay, so that's brain imaging studies and those studies are ongoing and that's also informed us about what's going on in a migraine attack and thinking about how we're trying to reduce that complexity. So then let's look at animal models. So animal models are fantastically useful and I have to say some sense our researchers can say, well, you know, let's give up on animals because they're not useful. But of course, we still need animal models because we need to understand in vivo mechanisms. And rodent models are fantastic because you can do genetic manipulation and you can test out your hypotheses. So we obtained a Trex knockout mouse that was generated. Um, and this mouse uh, was generated uh, by insertion of a neomycin cassette uh, into the Tresc region. And that disrupted the reading frame of uh, this gene, leading to a knockout. And at the same time, we had a LACZ reporter to tell us where the gene was being expressed. Okay? That's really important because so far the expression data for Tresc is really been quite contentious and equivocal. And uh, that's probably because the antibodies that are around are pretty rubbish. And there's been a publication some time back suggesting that Tresc was really very widely expressed uh, across the brain. So you can see here. But what we observed when we looked at this Tresc knockout mouse was that the antibody that they used was just as active in the Tresc knockout as it was in the wild type. So utterly rubbish. And so all of that expression data was wrong. Okay, so 
we know that threats expression in the pain pathways, and the suggestion was that actually it's expressed widely elsewhere, but actually we don't think so. We think it's expressed really in the pain pathways. Okay? So, which is summarized here. So this is data that we've got based upon mRNA expression and more careful antibody experiments to illustrate that TRESC is very strongly expressed in dorsal root ganglia and in trigeminal ganglia. And that, uh, indeed, in the trigeminal ganglia, it's the predominant two-pore potassium channel. Okay, so it's got a really important physiological function. So I should say, by the way, that this is really important when you're thinking about whether this is a target for drugs that are going to be efficacious in pain and in migraine. Because although the genetics suggest that it's a rare cause of migraine, the fact that it has an important physiological role in gating activity of sensory neurons actually suggests that if you were able to manipulate this, this would be a useful drug for all pain conditions. So that's why we're quite excited that this is a good target uh, as a novel uh, target for uh, drug discovery for pain disorders. Okay, so we took that TRESS knockout mouse and we started to explore some of the electrophysiology of trigeminal ganglia neurons isolated from the TRESS knockout mouse and comparing that against the wild type. We're a bit restricted in terms of being able to do the experiments because the tools that we have to manipulate tuple testing channels are limited. And also, it's subject to a number of different confounders, so you've got to set up the experiments really carefully. But we were fortunate to come across a compound which was a selective inhibitor of TRESC at these concentrations. And pleasingly, what we found was that in the TRESC knockout mouse, uh, sorry, in the wild type mouse, uh, this inhibitor indeed reduced the current. Uh, the outward potassium current that we think is being mediated by TRESC, and when you wash out that drug, that goes back up to wild-type levels. Whereas, as would be expected, in the TRESC knockout mouse, this inhibitor has no effect. And uh, that's also illustrated on this bar graph here, in terms of the percentage uh, reduction, and then the effects on the outward current as well. We then look to see a little bit further, not just looking at the uh, potassium current and the TRESS current, but now does it actually have a physiological effect, a pathophysiological effect, on the properties of these trigeminal neurons? And so again, what we did was to apply TRESC inhibitors and also look at the TRESC knockout to look and see what it did to the membrane potential, what it did to the excitability of these neurons, and we measure this by the amount of current you need to inject, inject to evoke an action potential spike, or the number of action potentials that will be induced given a particular current, a super threshold current, for a prolonged period of time. And what we found was that overall, that either the TRESC inhibitor, and more prominently even the TRESC knockout mouse, you, um, you get an increase in excitability which fits with our prediction from our previous studies, from the genetics, that loss of function of this gene would lead to neuronal excitability. Okay. So what about the expression? So as I said, we had the LAC-Z recorder, and we thought, fine, it's only expressed in the trigeminal ganglia. We were surprised and shocked, because it turns out that there is another place that is super enriched. It's in the hypothalamus. You know, you couldn't ask for better, really, for migraine. I've just told you that the place where migraine may start is the hypothalamus. 
and look where there's bag loads of um, trace. It's right there in the hypothalamus. Um, there is a little bit there in the somatosensory cortex and also in the hippocampus as well. And it may well have functions there too, as I'll, as I'll come on to. But it's there in the hypothalamus. And uh, pictures, really nice pictures from Stephen Hughes, um, uh, shows that actually it's also there really uniformly in the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So is that then the link to the circadian pattern of these migraine disorders? So this is all really exciting stuff. And... One of the ways that we've been taking this forward is used to use multi-electrode arrays. And uh, this is really complicated kits and produces really complex outputs. But essentially what we're trying to look for are the broad readouts of activity of neurons in different regions of the brain. Um, so Tatiana from my group has been uh, working with this um, and uh, has been putting these multi-electrode arrays um, either on the somatosensory cortex or on the hypothalamus on brain slices. <coughs> And has been doing this in wild-type mouse, as well as in tress knockout mice. And when you do that, you see something, again, really interesting, which is that in the tress knockout mouse, as predicted, you get an increase in activity, I mean, quite a significant increase in activity between the wild-type and the tress knockout mouse. So there's an increased activity there. And again, if you look at the hypothalamus, Again, you can see huge difference between the two. You know, massive uh, uh, increase in activity in the, in the hypothalamus. And so that fits in really nicely with the expression data, we think. And it also fits in uh, really nicely with our predicted uh, function. Okay, so we then went on to do some circadian phenotyping with Katie Richardson and Peter Oliver uh, 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 in DPAG. And we were kind of expecting there to be a circadian phenotype. Sadly, not that good. The story didn't end that easily because there was a very obvious circadian phenotype. So if you look, for example, at activity onset or if you do a phase shift, there's no difference between the wild type and the tress. Okay. Why is that? Not sure. But there are things that are different. So one thing that's different is that the tress mice, the knockout mice, are significantly more active okay, than the wild type. So again, that fits in with all of the other data that we've got so far. And maybe there is a circadian defect, but you've got to put them under right conditions. So we, went, we put them under constant light, which is part of their paradigm. What you see is that there is a significant difference in the activity onset. Okay. Why? Don't know. Okay. We're still trying to work that out. But there is a shift, a significant shift. So there is a, a significant difference in terms of the levels of the, the, the timing of the activity onset. And interestingly, if you also keep them in constant dark, although they appear the same, again, there may be a subtle defect in that clock, because as time goes by, you start to see differences. Okay? So, there is a circadian phenotype, and we're trying to work out what's going on. Okay. So, that's the kind of broad preamble okay, of where we're at now, in terms of our understanding of what's going on. So, how do we now take that forward? So, what we've been doing is obviously trying to take that understanding and trying to reduce this into a cellular model. And so we've been obtaining stem cells uh, from patients with the TRESS mutation. We've done that. We've done that through stem bank. We've also got control individuals. And then we've been busy, and I have to say, most of the last two years that I've spent on this have been spent on setting up the platforms and setting up the cultures to make sure that they're right. Okay? And this is a lot of hard work by all the members of my group to get this right, and it's still ongoing. So 
what I'm going to show you now are really the results of setting that up. And we're only just scratching the surface of looking at the differences between the Tresnon pair group and the, um, the, uh, the control group. Uh, but that's something that's obviously work in progress. So when you're trying to do a stem cell study, this is essentially what it is, okay, when you're trying to understand disease process. It's a case control study. And what you're doing is comparing cases against controls, and you undertake this process of making stem cells, differentiating them, and what you're hoping for is that the noise and the variation that you introduce in this process doesn't obscure the signal between the cases and the controls. So a lot of it is dependent upon how well you do this. So StemBank has spent a lot of time in standardizing the workflow to get from the patient to the IPSC line, okay, to minimize that variation. And then my group has spent a lot of time going from the uh, IPSCs to the end cell type that we're interested in. And we're now working on the phenotypes and also how we measure them to try to maximize the Okay, That's the broad scheme. And for monogenic diseases, like the trace mutation, it's tractable, it's very tractable, because there's a very nice correlation between uh, the gene and the phenotype, and therefore the gene and the cellular phenotype. And of course, this is the kind of separation that you might expect. And uh, the other really nice thing about working with monogenic disorders and why everyone's been doing it is because you can, of course, test that uh, hypothesis that the phenotype difference has been driven by the gene by doing genome engineering to correct the mutation and prove that the phenotype has been driven by the genetic change. Okay. So we've uh, been making nociceptors and we've used a protocol that was published by the Lawrence Studer group. And uh, essentially, I don't need to dwell on this other than to say that it's a good, robust protocol uh, which is reproducible. Okay, reproducible across multiple labs. And we've done that across three migraine patients and three control patients, and we're characterizing these cells. And as uh, the uh, neurons mature, they start to form uh, 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 nociceptive neurons. And interestingly, these ganglia-like structures with long neurites that come out of them that are reminiscent of the dorsal root ganglia. And uh, we are very concerned about whether these cells are maturing, so we're not dealing with fetal cells, so we look at the electrophysiology. And when we look at the electrophysiology, we start to see that the extra potential morphology adopts that of a mature neuron with the shoulder here. We also see that these cells are able to fire repetitively, that they have certain types of ion channel currents, the TTX uh, resistant and sensitive currents, that are hallmarks of mature neurons. And we can monitor that. And we can use this to ensure that the cells that we're assaying and do, taking the phenotypes from are mature neurons, and therefore the right cell types to be working with. What type of sensory neurons do, are we generating? Um, so this is something that's really important to us. Um, because this, again, is important in terms of thinking about where the pathophysiology might be. It turns out that this particular protocol produces non-peptidergic neurons. So nociceptive neurons can be broadly classified into peptidergic and non-peptidergic, and they've got certain key markers that identify one group versus the other group. Now, the reason I'm interested in peptidergic neurons, and the reason we're working on this now, is because in my brain, CGRP, which is the hallmark of a peptidergic neuron, 
CGRP is considered to be a key molecule for migraine. And indeed, some new drugs that are coming out, CGRP receptor antibodies, CGRP receptor uh, antagonists, have been shown to be efficacious in migraine. So it's clear that the peptidergic neurons are an important population. So we do need to get there, but we haven't got there yet, because as uh, our characterization has shown, we are really getting non-peptidergic populations. Okay. Um, so do our cells express TRESC? I mean, this is what we want to assay. Okay. And yes, we are really pleased to find that they do. Really interestingly, there's a peak quite early on okay, in neurogenesis. We're exploring what that means. We don't know yet, but we actually think it's quite important. Okay. But in terms of mature neurons, we also see that we're getting expression of TRESC, which we can see, it's coming through very well uh, with the current light, but we can see and we can assay. Okay. And uh, again, um, uh, Philippa has been looking at uh, control patients versus uh, controls versus patients. And again, interestingly, in these uh, patients who've got a heterozygous loss of function mutation, they appear to have lost their protein, okay, their, their TRESS protein, which again might explain some of the phenotypes that we're starting to see. So one other phenotype that we're starting to see, and again, this is early for this, so you need to take this with a pinch of salt because we need to increase their numbers up. Okay, but first of all, uh, we do see in these cells that there is a, a TPA, so a TRESS-selective inhibitable current in these neurons, and that there is a difference, so as expected, a reduced current, a reduced TRESS current in the patient compared to the controller. Okay, so that's it. Well, what about the properties of these cells? Is that different? So again, early data, as I say, treat it with a pinch of salt right now until we get the numbers up. But again, we are starting to see differences. So as we saw in the mouse model, we see similar changes going on in humans. But that's really important to make that step because it's not a given that just because the mouse has got changes, that the human will have the same changes. And that's particularly true for TRESC because there's not much similarity between um, uh, human TRESC and mouse TRESC. And so what we see is that there is no change in the resting uh, membrane potential, but there is a change in the excitability of these neurons, as, for example, measured by the rear beta current. So the amount of current you need to inject in order to evoke uh, an action potential spike. Okay, so we've got some phenotypes, and we're enlarging on those phenotypes. So the next step now is to prove that those phenotypes are coming from that TRESS mutation. So again, Philippa and the help with um, an FHS student previously, Daryl, have been working on trying to do gene editing in, in the IPSCs, and I'm just, just putting this up just to show that this is our plan. So we're going to knock out the TRESS gene, so that we've got a TRESS knockout, and then more ambitiously, we're also going to be planning to correct the abnormal uh, mutation. So that's underway. We've done the validation of the constructs in hex cells. This is our kind of workflow, pretty standard workflow now for gene editing in IPSCs. And we're making progress with that, so we've transfected in our tools uh, and uh, into our IPSCs, selected out uh, single-cell clones, expanded those up, and have started the analysis on these. And um, uh, tantalizingly, what we found is that we are picking up some clones that appear to have uh, been changed by these uh, CRISPR constructs. And uh, we're now uh, undertaking sequencing to verify whether or not we've actually achieved the TRESS knockout uh, in these particular lines. Okay, so that's work that is kind of underway and is uh, building upon in all of the other work that, that we've been doing. And we hope to be able to take that forward, uh, particularly into, into drug discovery. 
So where are we going sort of uh, in the future? And so I'll sort of romp through these next few slides. So we've been making dorsal root ganglion neurons, but as I said, for migraine, we're interested in trigeminal neurons because the trigeminal neurons are what are activated in a migraine headache. It may well be that they're quite similar, although neurodevelopmentally, they've got quite distinct origins uh, between the two. Again, the student group, very helpfully, very useful group of student group, they produce protocols all the time uh, uh, that we benefit from. Uh, they've made a, uh, a protocol that appeared to allow the production of uh, trigeminal neurons. So Galber and my group has been uh, developing this protocol and uh, reproducing this. Um, and so we've been going through essentially exactly that protocol, uh, identifying the right kind of markers, and it's looking very, very promising because at this stage, day 11, we're getting the right kind of markers going up, the right kind of markers going down to suggest it's cranial plateaued formation. And then as uh, time goes by, we then start to get ganglia-like structures. Again, I'm sorry, it doesn't really project very well. Uh, that, again, like the uh, peripheral uh, dorsal root ganglia-type neurons, uh, we're getting similar kind of things uh, for trigeminal ganglia neurons. And again, it looks as if this is going down a, sorry, a non-peptidergic route. Uh, rather than a peptidergic route. So again, what we're trying to do is to, uh, well, we'll finish off the characterization of these neurons that we're generating, which we believe are trigeminal neurons, and then we'll go on to define what type it is. Um, but the peptidergic uh, group is something that we're very interested in, and this is an, an area of active interest within STEM Bank as well, because I think uh, a number of groups would very much like peptidergic neurons. And so we've been optimizing our assays in order to be able to uh, determine whether or not we're getting the right set of neurons. And so, uh, again, Galba's been optimizing flow sort uh, protocols where we can assay for RUNCS1 and for CMET. And so by manipulating the various growth factors at different times, we'll be able to put these through the flow sort and then pick out the protocols uh, that uh, produce ones that are going to be enriched for the CMET. So this is still work that's in progress. Uh, and the reason it's important to use a, uh, an approach like this, rather than, for example, just rely on mRNA, which is, again, a relatively easy way to assay for what's happening in your cell system, is that mRNA doesn't necessarily get translated into protein. So you can be misled into thinking that you've got a particular cell type because of the mRNA, but actually you don't because it's not being expressed as a protein. <coughs> okay. What about the brain? Okay, so I've said that you know, the sensory neurons are important, but I've also said that the brain is going to be really critical. Now, our approach to the brain is that, yes, the neurons are really interesting, but the brain is more than just the neuron. It's made of astrocytes, of microglial cells, of endothelial cells, with neurovascular unit. So if we want to study brain disorders, whether that be Alzheimer's disease or whether that be migraine, you need to be able to study um, uh, neurovascular models. So this is what we've been trying to do. So we've now got cortical neuron differentiation working in our lab, and this is work uh, uh, done uh, by Satchan and also by Adam Handel. And um, uh, essentially we're using a protocol developed by Rick Livesey, and this is a nice protocol because it generates a relatively pure population of glutamatergic neurons, and it generates neocortical glutamatergic projection neurons. And ostensibly, you should be generating all six layers of the neocortex. And certainly, when we follow the protocol, we are able to identify markers of upper layer neurons and deep layer neurons. And these mature. 
And uh, as time goes by, we also start to see astrocytes marked out by GFAP here. And interestingly, we also see different types of astrocytes forming. So we get the kind of classical astrocytes, but also astrocytes of different morphologies as well. We've been looking at the electrophysiology again, because again, it's really important that we ensure that we're getting maturation of these neurons. So what we can see is that as time passes, we start seeing changes in the way in which these cells are behaving. So we start to see, first of all, early on, relatively immature cells. They then start to be able to fire action potentials, and then more action potentials, and then repetitive trains. And also, in other instances, we see spontaneous activity recorded by electrophysiological recording as well. Uh, this is a caution, though, because even within a single well or a system, you may get heterogeneity. So, and that's because within a single well, you'll get cells of different levels of maturity going on. And this is a problem for the field, because this introduces variation into your assays and into your phenotypes. It's a problem that we need to solve. Okay, again, just very early data, looking in this case at a familial hemiplegic migraine patient against control, um, just showing that there are differences that are already becoming apparent uh, between uh, healthy controls and uh, patients uh, in these lines in terms of their phenotypes. Okay. Uh, work by Adam Handel has been looking at single cell uh, multiplex qPCR. So one way to deal with that heterogeneity problem, if you've got a culture dish which has got all sorts of neurons in them, is well, why do you want to look at the average? Okay. Why not pick out an individual neuron and analyze that individual neuron? So that's what we've been doing with the Fluidine platform. Uh, and uh, this is a system called the Biomark, which allows us to undertake 96 qPCRs at a single cell level. Okay? So what we did was we took our cortical neurons uh, from a number of different donors at a number of different stages and put it onto um, uh, the Biomark chip. And we're still trying to understand the data because it's complicated. The 96 genes that we chose were a range of markers from control genes to neural progenitor markers and differentiation markers, layer markers and regional identity genes, as well as functional markers. And what we saw, I mean, I'll just pick up one interesting thing that we saw, was that actually there wasn't that as much noise as we might have predicted uh, from doing a single cell assay. And rather disappointingly, we, didn't, we weren't able to pick out the individual layers Okay, for of these neurons uh, that these neurons came from. So our expectation was that we would have representation for all six layers in our dish. Okay, we didn't get that. What we got actually was a good group of cells that were expressing both upper layer markers and deep layer markers. Okay, that's not we think what goes on in the human brain. Okay, so uh, we think that this protocol, although it's perhaps the best that we've got at the moment, is somehow stalling in corticogenesis and it is having expression not just at the mRNA level but also at the protein level of both upper layer markers as well as lower layer markers. Okay. So single cell approaches can help cut through the noise, it can also help inform you about what's going on in your culture and we think it's also going to be a powerful approach in terms of being able to pick out phenotypes between cases and controls. Okay. Um, coming to the end, uh, so uh, we make cortical neurons, we make astrocytes, and as I said, in terms of thinking about modeling the brain, we'd really like to get to endothelial cells. Um, and so this is uh, work that Sachan's been doing in collaboration with Roche. So Roche provided this protocol which generates endothelial cells. Now what we'd like to do is to make something that looks like a brain endothelial cell. Okay? Because that's different, that's got a different features and different morphology. And in particular, it forms tight junctions. 
that will then form the blood-brain barrier. So uh, Satchan spent a lot of time uh, trying to tweak the protocol uh, to get it to become more brain-like. And the first thing he did was to put retinoic acid on at various different time points, as well as manipulate all sorts of uh, um, uh, media constituents. And when we put the retinoic acid, we were pleased to see that the tight junction markers were significantly upregulated. So that seemed to work. We were getting there to a blood brain barrier. Disappointingly, though, and this is not poor projection, the cadherin disappeared. Okay? So it lost one of the key markers of endothelial cells. Okay. So, back to the drawing board, we then went through another round of manipulations, and now we withdrew one of the early factors that's involved in wind signaling, and added retinoic acid at a particular time point and a particular media, and lo and behold, we've had success. Okay, so we're now able to generate a, effectively endothelial cells which have got upregulated tight junctions, as you see in the blood-brain barrier, as well as upregulated VE coherence. Okay. It's not all the cells, so we are looking at using flow sorting again here with that protocol to pick out this population of cells which are expressing both VE cadherin and the tight junction, and then our plan is to plate that back down onto astrocytes, which again would be physiological, okay, to try to generate a more uniform layer. And the key sort of advance for this particular protocol is that it's quick. We can generate this within, what is it, 14 days. Okay, so it's a quick protocol to generate a blood-brain barrier model, which is useful, you know, for pharma are hugely interested in those kind of models. My interest is because this allows us to understand what's going on in the vascular compartment of brain disorders like that. So this is our plan, and we've already started early work, um, which is, uh, this is a fairly simple setup where we essentially will have endothelial cells growing on one side, astrocytes growing on the other side, and then neurons at the base, uh, uh, as well as astrocytes, or some configuration like that, to try to reconstitute that neurovascular model. And the nice thing is, is that that endothelial compartment will be, because of the tight junctions that are forming, will be excluded from the, uh, the media surrounding the neurons. So that then gives us the ability to be able to sample effectively sera, it's not sera, but you know what I'm getting at, as a model, as well as, say, CSF. So that then gives you a really great model to start thinking about, well, what kind of biomarkers are being released by these agents in disease processes. Okay. So that's what we've got going, and what we'd like to do is to move into this area of complex disease. And complex diseases are going to be really hard. Okay, it's going to be hard because even in those disorders which are polygenic and there are multiple genes that are driving them, and we know that there are multiple genes that are driving them, we know that there are environmental factors, and that correlation between gene and phenotype is not a one-to-one -one relationship. Okay? So this is a problem. So you start ending up with this kind of pattern between cases and controls, where either there's overlap or it's going in the wrong direction. How do you untangle that? There isn't an easy answer. Okay, but the first step is to try to uh, make the, your protocols consistent, make your platforms as artifact-free as you possibly can, and start, I think, with the monogenic disorders and start to move up. And I think that that's really what you know, I want to end on, is think about this process and get it right. And it may well be that for polygenic disorders, if you can get over the noise problem, that if you start to increase the numbers, that you'll start to see statistically significant differences between the cases and the controls, even if there is some overlap in the phenotype. 
So I think for complex disorders, you're going to have to move from the current you know, tens of uh, lines that you're phenotyping to perhaps 100 lines and compare them against cases, much in the way that genome-wide association studies had to increase their numbers up to try to get that association between the causative variant and the phenotype. So I think I stop there, and just by thanking all of the people that are involved in the group um, and all of my funders. Thank you very much.